Well, good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hawaii Kai Church, and thank you for joining us in worship, uh, especially if you may be new or visiting. We do want to extend a special welcome to you, and, and as always, whether you are new or not, uh, if there are any questions you may have, any comments, concerns, clarifications, uh, maybe you don't understand what we do or why we do it or, or something about Jesus and the gospel, uh, maybe something you're going through personally, uh, please come and speak with me or with any one of the others after service is over. Uh, we are here for you. We mean that, uh, not just today, but also throughout the week. And at this time, I invite you to take out your Bible or a Bible underneath the chair in front of you and turn to the book of Luke. And we are in Luke chapter 13 and verse 31 as we continue our study through the book. Luke chapter 13, verses 31 through 35 is our passage. And that passage can be found on page 873 if you are using a church Bible, page 873. Luke chapter 13 and verse 31 before we uh, look at our text, would you please join me in prayer? Uh, Father, we thank you for this time of worship, God. And, and we ask by your grace and, and in the work of the Holy Spirit that you would glorify yourself, magnify yourself in the preaching of your word and, and strengthen our grasp of all the love that you have for us in Jesus Christ, so much so that nothing else would even compare. Oh, we ask these things in Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, central to the gospel is a fact that Jesus is the God-man who endures much suffering on our behalf. And much of the pain of the cross had come in uh, the anticipation of that cross. For expectancy carries with it its own kind of suffering. Uh, many of you with young children can perhaps relate if your kids uh, have an aversion to shots. You know, each of my sons, especially when they were younger, when their birthday comes around, they know that their annual checkup is also coming around. And we're going to the doctors, they immediately ask me, am I going to get a shot? And, and at that point, the pain really begins, uh, long before that needle ever, enter, ever enters into their skin. And that's just something that's really minor. Uh, but that concept is nonetheless true, that there is uh, a pain in the anticipation of pain. And, and for Jesus, most explicitly since chapter 9 of Luke and in verse 22, he tells his disciples there, the Son of Man must suffer many things, and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. Uh, for Jesus, there was never any mistake about what is to come. He is going to be rejected by the most religious people who should have had their arms wide open to him. They should have celebrated his arrival, and instead they reject him. He is going to suffer many things, which are very brutal in detail, and he is going to be killed in the worst kind of way the first century had to offer, and on that third day, he will be raised from the dead. And, and yet Jesus, within that same chapter 9 of Luke, explicitly aware of all that is to come, in verse 51, the text says there, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so there's not only anticipation but there is this determination within the heart of Jesus, this stretching of his neck towards that finish line that helps us to understand the magnitude of the kind of love for us that exists within him. In our last passage, Jesus commands the people there to enter into the narrow door of salvation because not many are actually going to. And so he warns and pleads with them and urges them to strive with all of their effort to enter through that narrow gate. And it really shows to us the heart of our Savior in terms of salvation. 
and, and he's willing to tell it to us straight. It's in our passage this morning that we get to see this heart all the more clearly as he views his upcoming death and now he views the people he longs for, uh, really two simple points in this passage, his determination for that cross and his compassion upon those who least deserve that compassion, which helps us to understand more and more the very heart of the gospel. Please look with me in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Uh, Jesus, again, has this crystal clear understanding that he is going to perish upon a cross in Jerusalem, but he's going to continue to do the ministry that God has called him to do regardless. There is this determination to finish his calling, this resoluteness in that journey to the cross, even when most of us would look at the obstacles in front of him and veer from that uh, course, Jesus, he remains steadfast in it. Now, now, the context here is interesting. We have some Pharisees who appear to want to protect Jesus, and they deliver a message to them that they somehow know that Herod wants to kill him. And it doesn't really add up. For the Pharisees have been trying to trap Jesus, uh, trip him up, discredit him amongst the people. They are scheming against him, and they themselves want Jesus dead. Uh, whether there were some more sympathetic Pharisees among the larger group, whether this sympathy is a sham or sincere, uh, how they even came into the knowledge of Herod's mindset without being in cahoots with them, we just do not know. Whether friend or enemy, whether their words match their hearts to Jesus, none of that really matters at all. Because his focus is not on trying to understand the context or the motive of the information given to him. His focus is on doing what I need to do today and tomorrow and the day after that. Casting out demons is the undoing of Satan's work. Healing the sick is the undoing of sin's contamination upon the world. That third day, which is finishing my course, is a culmination of that saving work of which casting demons and healing the sick are but mere appetizers and pointers for it because Jesus is going to die upon the cross for our sin as sin itself to destroy its power and dominion over us, proof positive that a day is coming where sin and its ravaging effects will be no more forevermore. Jesus' work uh, focuses on the work at hand and not upon the people who want to impede it. And, and in much the same way, we uh, can often be tempted uh, to kind of veer off track if we are more focused on how others are responding or what they're thinking and their feelings about us rather than being focused upon the mission itself. Often it is that we contemplate more uh, our obstacles or our enemies, our difficulties, rather than looking at God and trying our best to be faithful to him today, tomorrow, and the next day. Whether God has called you to be a, a faithful uh, pastor preacher or a mother and father, a faithful worker and neighbor, a student, a child, a light and salt in a very, very dark, dark world, we must simply do what we are supposed to do today, tomorrow, and the next day, to be faithful to what God has called each of us to do, even if there are a multitude of obstacles in the way. Jesus here, he wants to remain faithful to his calling. 
even when the circumstances and threats to his well-being are screaming at him not to. King Herod, who is not a true king, by the way, in the sense of this absolute uh, sovereign authority, but he is a ruler under the Roman Empire for this particular region, and that carries with it uh, quite a bit of authority and freedom at that. And and we know this, for Herod was strangely uh, very interested in the ministry of John the Baptist until that ministry uh, offended him personally and directly. John called him out for his own adultery. And he not only put John the Baptist in jail, he also had John the Baptist's head put on a platter. And so when someone tells you King Herod wants you dead, uh, this is a very serious threat. I don't know if you've ever thought about what you would do if someone in power was going to threaten your life in the midst of you doing what God has called you to do. I think a lot of us, we'd analyze the situation, try and figure out if this threat was real or false, try and see why the threat was made and see if we could avoid doing anything to invite more. We probably spend the majority of our efforts focused upon the threat more than we focus upon anything else. I think many of us would consider this must be a sign from God to rethink what I'm doing. Maybe I should relocate to somewhere more safe or to contemplate what life's next chapter is going to be because it's obviously not going to be this. When a king with a track record of separating heads from bodies wants the same thing for me. And for Jesus, the threat here is not just Herod. I mean, even his supposed sympathizers who give him the tip here, the Pharisees, they are not on his team. They want him dead as well. And it's not just the Pharisees either. It will be in the coming days that the entire crowd of people will want Jesus dead. Give us Barabbas instead and crucify him. And yet it is with all of this. I mean, at what point are we, we be thinking it might be time to deviate from this plan? I think it might be time to call an audible. But Jesus' response here is very telling of what is happening within his mind and his heart because to him, Herod is just a little fox in the grand scheme of things. And you can tell him that. And that's not a compliment. A fox is a cunning, subtle, crafty, quick, deceitful, but little predator. And while Herod is in power and is called king and ruler, and is actually going to be instrumental in the crucifixion, which is upcoming to to Jesus here, there is no fear of Herod. He's just white noise in the background. Because in his mind, there is but one true king of which nothing happens outside of his sovereign rule. If I have confidence in my father, if I fear Yahweh and Yahweh alone, then I have nothing and no one else to fear. For nothing can happen to me outside of what he wants done. Jesus is not scared of a little fox named Herod. Jesus is not fearful of an untrustworthy group of Pharisees. Jesus is not intimidated by the fickle crowds who love him one day and want to crucify him the next day. Jesus is confident in the face of threats because Jesus is walking hand in hand with his father and is more concerned with being faithful to him today, tomorrow, and the third day to be focused on what he has asked me to do. Now, brothers and sisters, there is something about understanding the sovereignty of God and his power that is supposed to free us from a fear of any other kind of power. And there is a profound and deep liberty which serves to make us even more faithful to the task at hand. What is it that God is asking you to do? And what are the reasons, perhaps, that you are afraid to actually do it? 
the very culminating purpose of Jesus' earthly life is in his death upon the cross and in his resurrection from the grave. And if that is what God has for me, then that is what I'm going to be faithful in. And for each of us, whether you need to be faithful in this or that and that or this, our job is not to strategize or think about this person or that person and their motive against me or for me or this hassle or that obstacle and what is actually going to happen if I am obedient in some kind of cost-benefit analysis. No, but we are called to be faithful, brothers and sisters, and to keep our eyes upon the true king and walk hand in hand with him. And when we do so, we have nothing to fear, for he is with us. We need not fear even death. I think it is that oftentimes we do actually need to fear someone greater and have more respect for someone bigger who actually is in control and has more power than the little people and things we often do fear instead. I think it is that oftentimes we just need to be more focused on what he has called us to do rather than the background little characters and the white noise all around us. And it is only then that we may have a true peace and that sweet confidence that finds as its pillow the sovereign power of God. Listen to J.C. Ryle. He says, happy is that man who can walk in our Lord's steps and say, I shall have what is good for me. I shall live on earth until my work is done and not a moment longer. I shall be taken when I am ripe for heaven and not a minute before. All the powers of the world cannot take away my life until God permits. All the physicians of the earth cannot preserve my life when God calls me home. Uh, I mean, oh, what it would be to really live with this kind of faith. But more than an example, which Jesus is an example to us, more than an example to us, Jesus here is determined to accomplish the Father's will. He's resolute in this course in the face of death threats because he really wants that cross. He really wants to hang upon it for you and for me. He desires that with all of his heart because of his abundant love for us. Jesus, again, has a very clear vision of his death. He has this profound consciousness uh, in the anticipation of that death. Uh, even his name, Jesus, back in Matthew 121, it says, she will bear a son and you shall call his name Jesus for he will save his people from their sins. I mean, imagine every time you hear your own name, you're reminded that this is why I was born in a manger. This is why I have come to this earth. This is why I live, breathe, and eat because I want to save my people from their sins. That's why I came to this earth. Jesus, he does not have this luxury of ignorance. This is no plan B. There's no disillusionment or naivety here. He suffers in full because of that clear vision. And even if there may be outs along the way and ever-present reminders, even from his enemies of what is to come, Jesus wants what is to come. He desires to suffer on our behalf. He loves the gospel. Even though the gospel means the greatest suffering the world has ever seen, upon the only person who deserves not to suffer at all. If you can measure his ongoing pain and the culmination of it, that's when you can begin to measure his love for us. If you can measure his determination he has for this cross, then you can begin to measure his affection for you. For nothing fastens Jesus to that cross but his resolve to save the very ones he loves with all of his being. 
We often need to look at our Savior's determination and resoluteness so that we might better understand his heart for us, which will then place every other thing in our life in its proper perspective because nothing else can even really compare. And it's with this kind of heart uh, that it's spelled out more and more in the rest of our passage. Look with me in verse 34. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus here uh, longs for the people who least deserve that longing, and he is compassionate upon those who should have earned his anger instead. We not only can measure Jesus' love by his determination for the cross, we can also measure Jesus' very heart of compassion by the wickedness of those he is compassionate upon. Jerusalem is known as the city of God. It's the very place where Yahweh established his temple for worship and where the nations could come for prayer, the center point of God's religion, where one would most naturally think that the very best of actions should occur in this holiest of cities, Jerusalem. I mean, this would be the very last location if we were a betting people. It would be the last location where we would predict could be the site for so much wickedness. And yet it is throughout the Bible, there seems to be this even additional layer of wickedness because this is not just evil, this is religious evil. And Jerusalem is that very place for that hypocritical religious iniquity. And in one short phrase, we hear the lament of the Son of God, O Jerusalem. And that lament is so deep that Jesus repeats the name, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The iniquity that characterizes Jerusalem is compounded by the effort that God has put forth in sending people to Jerusalem to call them back to him to invite them to return to him, to repent and come back home. Yahweh had sent many faithful servants and has given multiple, numerous chances for reform, for return, to beckon them back to himself. And rather than list a few prophets who are martyred, Jesus characterizes the entire city and the center point of Jewish religion as the places where the very mouthpieces of God are silenced, not because they're silenced, They only silence them by their own deaths. And they're brutally given the treatment that only the worst criminals under the Old Covenant were given for their crimes, which is being pelted with stones until they died. And so there's this corporate guilt here, which is entirely massive, and not just in one generation, but is seemingly that which characterizes Israel's entire history, which is at the same time going to be culminated when they crucify the Son of God upon the criminal's cross. It's almost entirely unpredictable that the city of Jerusalem, the city of God, would be home to the most heinous of crimes, including the Son of God's death. But what is altogether even more unpredictable than even that, in light of the history of these heinous crimes, is the Son of God's attitude towards those who commit them wholeheartedly. Jesus says with all his heart, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. 
You know, we're talking about this passage uh, before lunch uh, this week or last week. I can't remember. And Pastor Dave actually said he witnessed this one time, how a mama hen would stretch her wings out and try and get all the little chicks under them, even the ones that weren't hers. And he was pretty moved by that image, which I didn't quite get. I don't really like birds. And, and so I Googled, image, uh, searched the image, and it's exactly how he said it. It's all these little beaks poking out from the hen's feathers. And her gaze is such that she's trying to protect them and cover them with her own body, keeping them close to her, that somehow the best place for them is right next to her beating heart and under her care and her watchful eye. There's something very, very tender about this image. I don't know that most people would naturally think that the holy, holy, holy God of all would desire to have the murderers of his prophets pictured as these little vulnerable baby chicks with their little beaks. I don't know that most people would naturally think that the holy God of all would somehow desire to have the very worst of sinners close to him. The Son of God here by his own admission and visualized in the Word of God is putting forth this image of his compassion upon those who least deserve it as a mother hen who wants to cover and protect with his own body and keep close to him as the very best place for them, being right next to his beating heart and under his care and his watchful eye that Jesus actually wants to gather the most wicked ones to himself. And this is really what is at the very heart of the gospel and the good news. Romans 5, Ben read that to us at the beginning of the service, for while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. A few verses after that, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. You know, many of us, all of us really, we want to put our best face forward and, and keep our skeletons in the way back of our private closet because we know, because it truly is in this world that if people were to know the true us in all of the dirty nooks and moldy crannies, there would be this fear that we might lose the love we have from people if they really knew everything. For the love of this world is, is so contingent on how we perform and what it is that we have to offer and, and how much we are not like those people we disdain. And, and this is what often makes things like marriage so difficult. After the butterflies in the belly are gone and the reality sets in, that we hit this realization that we are each married to someone quite selfish and sinful and we get so upset at them because we are also quite selfish and sinful. And this is what makes us applaud for those who say we've been married 15 years because it really is an achievement for love to last and to endure through all of that wrestling and conflict that is inevitable when two wicked people get together. And even then, our spouses do not always know the deepest recesses of our own hearts. And here it is we find what is really at the heart of the gospel and the good news. Jesus, the Son of God, knows absolutely everything about you. Every single one of us. Listen to Psalm 139. Oh, Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up, you discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down and are acquainted with 
all my ways, even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. I mean, I don't know about you, but when I first read that psalm many years ago as a new believer, I was utterly horrified. And I felt in that horror that if God were really to know, this is really true, that he knows this much about me, there is no way, no way ever he would choose to continue to love me. But it is here that Jesus goes in, eyes wide open, brothers and sisters. He not only has a clear vision of his own suffering in Jerusalem, and is not naive to the pain that is to come, and yet he wants it. He also has this clear vision of the ones he desires to save. He is not naive to the wickedness within our own hearts, even when we can be naive to it ourselves. I mean, we don't even really know how bad it can get. Sometimes God, in his grace, will convict you. He will just pull back the curtain a little bit so that we can see a peak here and there. And even in those peaks, we are broken into pieces at the sin. And that's just a little bit. I think it was R.C. Sproul who once said something like, if God were to show us the clarity of all the sin that was within us, we would die immediately at the sight of it. I, I mean, we don't even know. Like, he knows and yet it is that the cry of the Son of God at this juncture of being threatened by death, the cry of the Son of God here to those who are the most wicked and doubly so the religiously wicked is still, how often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings? I mean, can you believe it? Can you believe that the Holy Son of God who hates sin still somehow longs to gather you to himself? And it is that for salvation to occur in any single one of us, for you to actually be gathered under his wings and held close to him, you really have to believe at least these two things, both that you are more wicked than you even know you are. And yet Jesus, Jesus here wants with all of his heart to bring you near to him regardless you really have to believe both of those things. For the love of God does not make any kind of sense unless you understand the context for that love. And sadly, that is just too much for many to believe. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you would not. The reason why not all are saved has nothing to do with God's heart for us. Instead, it has everything to do with those who are unwilling to come to him. God's heart for the sinner is very clear in the scriptures. Ezekiel 33, 11, as I live, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. 2 Peter 3, 9 tells us that the Lord is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. 1 Timothy 2, 4 lets us know that God desires, he desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is his heart for even the most far gone sinful of people. Now, we believe in the sovereignty of God in election, and yet we know it's much more complex than we can understand in this moment. That while God is a God of sovereign grace, the biblical reason why people are not saved is because they are genuinely and entirely unwilling to be saved. God is more willing and wanting to save than people are willing and wanting to be saved. And therein lies the heartbreak and this lament from Jesus. And brothers and sisters, we really, when we think about it, we really ought to be the most humblest people in the world. 
we really ought to be uh, the most compassionate of people in the world. And, and if that's not true of us, then we have likely lost our grasp of what it is that we so proudly proclaim. And we have to return to these twin truths periodically and all the time of Jesus' determination to save us and Jesus' compassion upon the ones who least deserve it. We have to come back to the very heart of the gospel. And if it is that other things seem to dethrone God, uh, dethrone this God of love upon the throne of our hearts, that, that something a little bit more sparkly or literally is drawing us uh, in more, or a barn house of cash is what we rather give our efforts to, or the applause of the crowd after a big game is what we really desire instead, and blah, 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 and yada, yada, yada. If all of this appears to be more valuable than being near to Jesus Christ, I think we've lost again. We've lost it. And we need to come back to the one who is always willing to have us, unless it is that we are unwilling to go to him. Jesus is willing and he is wanting and longing to receive us to himself. But that does not mean that it is not a light sin to prefer other things to Jesus and that it is not a light sin to think of his love lightly. And Jesus is very clear on the judgment, and that's not inconsistent with his compassion. In verse 35, he says, behold, your house is forsaken. He, he states that as a matter of fact. Judgment is coming for Jerusalem, and judgment is going to come upon those who spurn his compassion, not again because Jesus is unwilling to have us, but because people are instead. There, there are these dual notes of compassion with hen-like imagery and this deep gravity with judgment announced within the same breath, and that judgment does not take away from his love at all. Jesus can be utterly confrontational and clear, and yet the most compassionate, like a mother hen, because both are true at the same time. Jesus can declare that judgment and bring up past sin, even the worst kinds of things, and that's still not inconsistent with compassion and grace. This is not talking about balance. Well, we need to be somewhere in the middle, 50% that, 50% that, or some other proportion that seems to be more palatable for my targeted audience. No, these truths are not in competition with each other because, again, his love is only understood within the context of his judgment upon sin, a judgment which the Son of God renders upon himself in our place on that cross so that he might protect us from the wrath of God by his outstretched arms to which we hold fast to him underneath those arms. And yet even in the context of judgment, we see this ray of hope still being held out that there is a true Israel within and even outside ethnic Israel that will finally look and finally realize that Jesus is the blessed one who comes in the name of the Lord and those will have salvation finally. And I wonder if you have actually and really come to the Lord and felt what it is to be under the shelter of his wings. Uh, if not, what is it that is preventing you from it? I mean, whatever it is that you have to cast aside, whatever sin that has a hold of your heart that you need to repent of. Whatever it is that is preventing you, it is simply not worth it. There is no greater love than the love that God has for us in his son, Jesus Christ, who is determined to save and is compassionate upon those who least deserve that compassion. He has eyes wide open looking at you and telling you, you need to come back to me.
Would you please join me in prayer? Father, we thank you so much for sending your son to do this work, this, this kingdom work of saving us, that he would continue to work until it was accomplished, until he cried out upon the cross, it is finished. Thank you for his heart of compulsion, determination, his heart of compassion and love and grace that he would suffer to die for those who deserve to suffer. Father, would you by your grace and by your spirit open our eyes more and more to just how much you love us in Jesus Christ that again, nothing else would ultimately compare, not even one iota in our hearts. We long to love you, just a fraction of how much you loved us, and would it be by your grace that you would make it so. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.